Yes, our reading is Mark 14 and we'll be beginning at verse 53. You can either follow along in the Pew Bibles or it's on the screen behind me. Mark 14, 53 and we'll be going through to verse 20 of chapter 15 and we pick up the story after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Chapter 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. 
Now it was custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The tone's going to change just a little bit now. It's just going to dial it back. And uh, if you've been bopping away there for a while, you've got to... Remember that passage? It's a bit more serious, isn't it? Yeah, we kind of got to get back into a more serious frame of mind. Uh, let us come before our Lord in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for your word, which we can read together in our own language and understand your goodness to us. And we pray that you'd help us uh, to learn something today and, and respond to you the right way. Thank you for this time we have now, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever seen those double images uh, where you see one picture and then you look again a bit longer and you can see another one. If you haven't, this illustration's going to fail. Uh, but <laughs> there is one that's... Uh, yeah, you can bring the water up. Thanks, Justine. Isn't she lovely? Thanks. <laughs> There's one that um, shows a picture of um, an older lady and she looks actually a bit like a witch. Um, but when you look at that image a bit longer, uh, you can see there's a, a younger lady with a shawl on her head uh, and a, a feather in her hat. That's one of the more boring ones. Uh, so I thought I'd tell you about a double image which is a bit more exciting at our place. Uh, our favourite one at our place is the one that's on the packet of the Toblerone. Uh, and I don't know if there's an image that's coming up. Look at that. You see that one? Yeah. Okay. So um, the mountain is one of the tallest ones in Switzerland, the Matterhorn. And that's um, the home of making Toblerone. Now, that one has an image of a bear in it. Can you see that? You know, for... It's a, a more exciting one in our place because 
just to see that image again gives anyone a reason to go and buy some more chocolate. And so any excuse will do to buy chocolate at our place. Uh, not that it benefits me at all because everybody gets to it before me, before Muggins me. It's true they do, so you can, um, you can chastise them for me later on. But if I do get to a piece, one square, one measly square, I really enjoy looking at the bear in that Matterhorn. And it's fascinating. It's a fascinating concept, isn't it, this double image idea? Because I've been eating Toblerone for almost 50 years now, but it's only been in the last six months that it was brought to my attention that there's a bear in the Matterhorn in the mountain. I was astonished by that. Uh, and now every time I look at that mountain, that that bear is there, plain as the nose on your face. Well, isn't it fascinating how our perception can be so skewed that we can be uh, blind at other ways of looking at things? We can get rid of the bear now. We've got to... <laughs> <laughs> now, the reason why I'm, I'm bringing that to your attention is not just to entertain you. I mean, I hope you are entertained by the bear. Uh, but the reason is because it's, it's raising that point about our perception. Uh, that double image starts to show us, doesn't it? that we can see um, something, you know, for me, nearly 50 years and never even see that. And then six months ago, someone says, look, there's the bear. Now, that is what we see also in the Bible, isn't it? We can read the Bible for years. Some people do. And they can't see God's hand or his plan of salvation. But when we look again through the power of God's spirit, we can see things from a different point of view and it's God's point of view we get his authorized view of life in the world when we see it through the power of the Holy Spirit well we're going to move now to the context section in your outline to talk uh, through this passage and you might have noticed that this the tone of God's word in this section is more serious because things have intensified over the last few chapters between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, and now they've become very tense. Judas has betrayed Jesus and, his, and the henchmen of the leaders have seized Jesus. In verse 50, we read, then everyone deserted him and fled. This is a, a difficult, difficult time. There's no feasting, there's no joking around, and there's no fun or fellowship at this time. People are scared and they're running for their lives. And the situation for Jesus and his followers, for all intents and purposes, it's spiralling down and it's, it's out of control and it seems only a matter of time before things are going to crash and burn. And from an earthly point of view, Jesus' mission to come as Christ the King looks like an abject failure. And the disciples had earthly hopes as well, didn't they? To reign side by side with King Jesus. But these, these earthly hopes, for some of them, are coming to a complete collapse, aren't they? As Jesus begins to be humiliated, mistreated and then taken away to be crucified. From a human standpoint, as he's handed over, Jesus looks to be a failed Messiah. It looks like the project is in disarray. That's from a human standpoint, though. The dream of bringing in the kingdom of God, 
is now looking like it's turning sour and this is becoming the stuff of nightmares. That's from an earthly point of view, that is. And yet, when we see it from another perspective, when we see it from God's uh, standpoint, this is not the case. In fact, we remain on track with God's plans. For we read even earlier in the Word of God, in Psalm chapter 2, about God's King, his Messiah, his Anointed One, and we read... In verses 1 and 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is what we're seeing happening now is unfolding. This is just fulfilling God's plans that have already been prophesied in the past. And so today we see the teachers of the law, the high priests, the elders and the other chief priests who've gathered together against the Lord's anointed one. And they want to gather together and cross-examine Jesus. In verse 55, we're told that they were looking for evidence against him so they could put him to death. But it's worth asking another question, isn't it? Why do they want evidence against Jesus to put him to death? It's interesting, isn't it? Some Christians don't actually know why Jesus uh, was crucified from from an earthly point of view. They don't understand. Uh, They say it was because he he was a good man. That's why they killed him. Really? Is it that simple? Just Jesus was a a good man and because they they didn't like him so they, they wanted him dead? Was that all there was to it? Why did they want to have Jesus put to death? Well, opposition to Jesus, for a number of reasons, had been building for some time now. In Mark chapter 11, when Jesus rode into town on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, which anticipated the coming of a humble king, the people responded with their hosannas, which was an an exclamation word meaning save, a word of praise. And they were receiving Jesus as the coming king of Israel. Now the Jewish leaders understood that if uh, Jesus was the coming king of Israel and received that way, that was going to put him on a collision course with the Romans, with Caesar as king. And that would become a problem for their position with Rome too. Their positions would become untenable and dumped. Another reason that opposition had been building against Jesus centered on his denouncing the leader's role with respect to the temple. Back when the original temple was built by uh, under the reign of King Solomon, when he dedicated the temple to the Lord and prayed, he said, as for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, when he comes and prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you as do your own people Israel and know that this house that I have built bears your name so that when the first temple was built it was anticipated that there would be a place for the nations and Jesus notes that the uh, the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations as well 
But he said to the current leaders that they'd made it into a den of robbers. How do you think they appreciated those words? He's in effect saying that they'd failed to carry out God's will for the temple. And so Jesus doesn't indulge the priests and the teachers of the law, does he? He doesn't endear himself to the Jewish leadership by calling them to account and saying, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. I mean, imagine saying that to the committee of management here in Port Macquarie. Where's Andrew Hamilton? <laughs> you know, it'd just be a big insult, wouldn't it? I mean, if I was turning up more regularly, which I tend not to, uh, you know, we'd, we'd take that pretty hard. It's a, it's a den of robbers in there. You know, that's... You can see that... Uh, well, the reason why Jesus says that, though, is because it was. They'd, they'd butchered the job. And so he doesn't endear himself to the leadership and opposition against him builds. They resented him for that kind of thing. And their resentment continued to build, especially when he spoke about the parable of the vineyard against them, which was alluding back to Isaiah chapter 5, where Israel was warned against God's coming judgment because they weren't bearing fruit as a nation. They were, they were known for their injustice. And so Jesus takes that parable and he applies it to the religious leaders. And in verse 12 of Mark chapter 12, we read, Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken that parable against them. So Jesus was critical of the leaders of, the, um, of their failure to be the kind of shepherds that God wanted. Was it just because Jesus was a good man that they wanted to see him killed? No. We've seen their opposition grew out of the fact that Jesus was the, came as the true king of Israel and their knowledge that his reign as God's king would clash with the Romans and that would cause a problem for them and their roles which were retained at the pleasure of Rome. They soon stood to see their positions and their roles demolished and the temple with it. And so we see today in the passage that was read for us before by Janelle, thank you, uh, the threat that was there in Mark chapter 12, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. We start to see that that threat is, is being played right out. The Jewish leaders are against him. And so we're up to um, point one now. As you'll find in, in our sermon outline. There we go, it looks like we're almost halfway there. So the Jewish leaders began to accuse Jesus in order to have him handed over to the Romans and put to death. The Jewish council had a process to go through before they could hand someone over to the Romans. They couldn't just hand someone over, they had to go through a process of questioning and they needed to get the testimony of uh, something like the minimum of 23 witnesses and a maximum of 70. Here in Mark 14, we get the testimony of some people who are testifying against Jesus, but they're falsely testifying. They're taking things that Jesus has said and they're, they're taking them out of context and they're using them against Jesus. For example, his remarks about rebuilding the temple, one not made by hands and doing it in three days, 
which was an allusion to Jesus's bodily resurrection. That remark was a half-truth. Jesus warned that unless there was repentance, it would be at God's hand that there would be judgment. God would bring the judgment on the temple and the rulers. But in verse 59, we're told that even their testimonies didn't agree. And so the chief priest starts to ramp things up. And a line of questioning about who Jesus was as the Christ starts to come into play. In verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? They don't, they don't like to say God's name. In verse 62, Jesus says, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. The high priest sought to bring a charge against Jesus which would amount to treason against the Romans and that would lead to his death and that becomes the charge with which Jesus is then handed over to Pilate in chapter 15. Now throughout the uh, Gospels you might have noticed that Jesus has been trying to keep a lid on this news that he's the Christ. You know, it's called the Messianic Secret. He's, he's encouraged the disciples to not share that news when they draw the attention, draw, draw the conclusion that he is the Christ. But now his mission is towards completion and he speaks openly with the high, high priest about who he is. When the high priest says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? He, he's asking for Jesus' uh, defence, if you like, or his point of view at this trial. And when Jesus replied yes, Jesus also continues to give some evidence why that's true. And he says that his evidence is, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And as Jesus... Um, says that's the evidence for me that I am the Christ. He's referring to a couple of passages, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 and Psalm 110 verse 1, which allude to uh, God's king uh, exercising his reign and end time judgment. What Jesus is saying to the high priest anticipates that he's going to be uh, vindicated, he'll rise, he'll reign as king and he'll come in judgment. That's what he's saying. In some, he's saying to the high priest, you'll have evidence that I'm the Christ because our roles are going to be reversed. While you're here judging me, pretty soon, at some point, you will see that you're going to be judged by me. That's the evidence that you'll get that he's the Christ. A reversal of roles. The high priest, uh, does he actually see uh, Jesus as the Christ? Does he actually believe that? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't really believe it, does he? How do we know? Well, we know because he says, this is blasphemy. This is an insult to God. And then he asked, why do we need any more witnesses? Uh, so it's, if it's true, and, and it's going to become apparent over time that it is, but at this point in time, we can see that the, the high priest doesn't believe it. 
And so he then uh, hands Jesus over to be mistreated and insulted. It seems to be some of the other chief priests that um, spit on him and mistreat him at this point. And it's all looking um, very awful. Jesus confesses that he is the Christ, but he's not the kind of Christ that they're expecting or thinking about. Jesus doesn't come to make war with Rome. He's not the kind of king that they're anticipating. But he comes to make war with that other enemy, sin. He comes as a servant king to give his life as a ransom for many, as we learn in Mark 10.45. And it's interesting, at this point, this is where we're supposed to, we we get a little bit of a trick, because we're sort of sitting here, sort of looking down a bit on these um, people who are mistreating Jesus, and we kind of, you know, we don't think much of them, do we? And it's pretty horrible, and, and they're unbelievers. And we sort of, at one level, we're, we're sort of blaming them, aren't we, for uh, Jesus going to the cross. And it's easy to look down on those who mocked Jesus and decided that he deserved death. But at the same time, we've also got to look at uh, what's going on here. And that is that there's a contribution at one level that we make to Jesus going to the cross too, isn't there? Our plight is that we also are sinful people who need a sin-bearing sacrifice. We need a saviour. And so as we read this part of God's word, on the one hand, although it is right to see this as as atrocious, at the same time, God's word's there to challenge us. This is a message for us this morning, isn't it? To think about our own hearts and to remember that it's, it's for our sin that Jesus also goes to the cross. It's for my sin and it's for yours that he goes to the cross. And so the challenge for us is not to maybe, you know, spend too much time thinking about how deplorable those people are, but to be spending time thinking about how grateful we can be that Jesus willingly lays down his life for us. So this is a, an important point to go th- forward into the week. As we think about this passage, let's think about, at one level, that we've also sent Jesus to the cross and that's something we can be very grateful for his faithfulness to us and to, to lay down his life. Well, in this next section, we see Jesus rejected by disciples, in particular Peter. His disciples disown him in verse 66 to 72. Mark introduces us into a slightly different scene now and it's one that's filled with some sorrow And there's a bit of misery in there as well. Peter's situated in the courtyard of the high priest's residence. He's not there for a good time. It's probably still dark because it's the time before the rooster crows and some research tells us that that's between about 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. and 3 a.m. in the morning there. So it's probably pretty dark. And this is the second time we learn that he's warming himself by a fire there. It's just a little detail that shows a historical note that comes in there. This is not a fairy tale. There's historical details. Peter finds himself in a crisis. And it's not very nice to be in a crisis, is it? Earlier, he'd made it pretty clear to Jesus that he had a different agenda for Jesus. And he didn't think that uh, the agenda for the Christ was to be a suffering servant. 
but it's now becoming clearer to Peter that Jesus is that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and that reality and that he's caught up in it uh, is, is becoming clearer to Peter. It's coming home to roost, so to speak. Even earlier when Jesus was with some of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember how many times he, he prayed that they wouldn't um, fall into temptation? It was three times, wasn't it? And here uh, Peter is denying the Lord three times. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. It's interesting, isn't it, to think about that, that saying, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Sometimes we can be stronger than we are. Yes, I'll stand up for the Lord. You know, I'll know, I'll know my colours to the mast. I'll be known as a Christian. And then at some situations when you can feel threatened or the only member there, it can be easier to keep a low profile. Uh, and so Jesus reminds us that we... We're not so autonomous, we're not so strong. There's circumstances that we'll find ourselves in very difficult situations. And so we don't need to have any swagger and bravado and pretend that we're stronger than we are. Jesus reminds us the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And Mark notes in this section that Peter's already now denied him twice before we get to verse 70. And in verse 70 he says, After a little while those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Well, we can learn something from Peter's example. And this morning we're, at this point in the sermon, by the way, you're not just getting information. Um, this is the challenging point now. We can learn from Peter's example because under pressure, Peter buckled. And he seems to be very disappointed in himself for doing so as he breaks down and weeps. Jesus has called his people, including us, to be those who take up our cross and follow Jesus. But he also knew that some wouldn't always stand the test of time. And here we see a moment when Peter fails in his convictions to stand with Jesus and be consistent in his following of the Lord. And so perhaps this section is included by Mark for the people of his time to encourage them to, to, to stand firm, to pray that God will strengthen them in their convictions to live as a Christian. Perhaps these sections are included as a warning to us. We can learn that this is how Peter, uh, he failed at this point. He wasn't consistent. But at the same time, as we see and read this section about Peter's failure... We also see that it's not the end of the story, is it? Because what happens next is Peter revisits his commitment to the Lord. He's restored to the Lord in John's Gospel and later in the New Testament we, can, we see his resolve to serve the Lord once again. And so although this is a warning for us, this is also an encouragement for us to be among those who 
keep on turning back to the Lord, keep on firming up in our convictions as Christians to love the Lord and walk with the Lord closely. There's the challenge for us to keep on uh, having a go at that. And I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking either. I'm not talking about standing firm as a Christian in our own strength as though somehow the power is from within us. I'm talking about asking God to help us through his spirit to stand firm as Christians when it's a difficult situation, where there's no glory in it. It's, it's going to be difficult sometimes, and so we need God's help to stand firm. And it's times like today, by the way, which should help us to firm up in our convictions too, that yes, we, we do want to stand with Jesus. We're grateful that he suffered for us. And so this morning, we should be encouraged to be bolstered in that conviction, ready for those times when we might find ourselves marginalised, and ostracized and alone. This is an encouragement for, the for us this morning to be firm in our convictions about where we stand as Christians. And so hopefully we can learn from Peter's experience to pray. Pray that we don't fall into the temptation to deny the Lord. That's the challenge. And if we failed, then let us also pray that God would forgive us for for that failure in the same way that Peter did and help us to turn back with God's help to once again be more consistent living with Jesus as Lord. That's the challenge. Well, the rulers in this next section conspire against Jesus in chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Mark moves us on to an exchange between Jesus and the Roman leadership. We're familiar with Pontius Pilate, who was a Roman prefect in charge of the province of Judea. Pilate's been briefed about the news about Jesus. In verse 2, he asked Jesus directly if he's the king of the Jews. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Now, Pilate, he's an interesting figure. He gets, he gets uh, shown in the Gospels and other ancient history as somebody who's brutal uh, and he mixes the blood of Galileans with their lamb sacrifices and things like this, he's not a nice guy. But he's also cast as someone who looks like he's vacillating a little bit, a bit, a bit indecisive. And his wife has a dream and it spooks him and he's, he's kind of a... He looks like he, he vacillates a little bit. It almost looks like he's a little bit on Jesus' side in this, but I'm not actually sure that's, a, that's the case. It looks like he's also a pretty good politician. He's pretty clever. He just doesn't want there to be a mess and a rebellion on his watch. And so we see a bit of that in this section. Uh, he doesn't really believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews. When it comes to releasing a prisoner into freedom at Passover time, we read in verse 9 and 10, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. He knows it's just out of their self-interest. In verse 12, furthermore, he asks, What shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? So he doesn't really believe that Jesus is the king of Jews. He says, well, that's what you call him. He doesn't really see Jesus as a threat to Caesar's kingship, but nor does he want to stir up trouble in his own backyard. He asks the crowd, 
who they want released. He's trying to hump it back onto the crowd. And even then, what should he do with Jesus? Even when he asks in verse 14, why, what crime has he committed? He's kind of trying to be asking the crowd to place it on record why Jesus should be crucified so that he can then go and do what? So that he can go and wash his hands of the matter, which is literally what he does. We find out that from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. There we go. So to speak, he's washed his hands. Pilate doesn't care about Jesus. He seems to be a savvy politician who's trying to wriggle out of trouble. Pilate just wants Jesus to go away without further problems on his watch. And he doesn't give us the impression that he really believes that Jesus is the king of the Jews at all. In verses 16 to 20, Jesus is mistreated by the Roman soldiers. He's given a purple robe of royalty placed on him. It's just a, it's a game, isn't it? Instead of a proper king's crown, he's given that awful crown of thorns as a painful insult. They mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. But they don't believe he's the King of the Jews either, do they? It's interesting, isn't it? From a human point of view, this all looks weak and pathetic, doesn't it? These people just teasing him, yeah, yeah, King of the Jews. But that's, that's like our little, you know, to go to the trivial again, back to the little Toblerone bear on the Matterhorn. Uh, you know, for years we couldn't, I couldn't see that. And then someone points it out, look, there's the bear. And it's like, wow, there's another point of view. Well, for these people, they can't see it. It's like this, I don't know how to define the word irony. It's a bit of a trick, irony. It's like they're just playing this out, teasing him, how oh, king of the Jews, but they don't actually realise that this is the king of the Jews. This is the Messiah. From their point of view, they just, they cannot see it. There's a spiritual blindness, there's a spiritual battle. From a human standpoint, Jesus is handed over, mistreated, humiliated in his sufferings. He appears to be a failed Messiah. From a human standpoint, that's just what it looks like. We can't sugarcoat that. And initially, the disciples were also discouraged too. They were scared. They ran like scared rabbits. And Jesus was left alone. And his loneliness continues because as he suffers he's also abandoned and left alone by God as the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world he takes away our sin he takes away your sin and he takes away my sin humanly speaking his death looks fruitless yet from God's point of view this is it friends this is the way this is the only way for salvation jesus prayed if there's any other way take this cup from me this is the only way of salvation and from god's point of view things are on track and that's something that the uh, the apostles understood when they preached to the early church in acts chapter 4 they drew on that passage in uh, psalm chapter 2 did you know that if you've been reading your bibles you would um, acts chapter 4 
Peter and John. It's hard to work out which one's saying it, actually, whether it's Peter or John, say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. And so as we read the story of Jesus rejected, we're mindful that although humanly speaking it looks disastrous from God's point of view, uh, the way of the cross and the way of the resurrection becomes the very grounds of our salvation. It's the way that we enjoy the washing away and the bearing of our sins and life and forgiveness with the Lord. And this is a message that some people spurn and they find it weak and offensive and pathetic. But you know, the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul the Pharisee, he thought the same thing too, until he met the risen Lord Jesus. And then he started to push a different barrow and said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this message. Because it's the power of God. This is the dunamis word. This is the dynamite word, as I remind youth group kids. This message is dynamite because it's the way God saves all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. And as we see things by the power of God's spirit this way, we can see the message of salvation from a different point of view, not a worldly point of view. We're seeing the message of salvation this morning from God's point of view. And so may we be among people like the Apostle Paul and not be ashamed of this gospel message. Let's firm up in our convictions as Christians and be grateful to God for his grace and his kindness to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good message, isn't it? So it's something to rejoice in God's goodness to us in Christ, even though it looks disastrous from a human point of view, from a heavenly point of view, this is our way of salvation. Let's hold on to that. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this message this morning where we can see two perspectives, one that looks like an abject failure and a disaster. But from your point of view, we see the way that you've provided salvation for us. And we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks that Jesus willingly went to the cross, laid down his life for our sins and became our sin-bearing sacrifice. Lord, we think about our convictions and our frailty and our weakness to to be revved up and encouraged here this morning. But Lord, we pray that these convictions would carry with us into this week, that we'd uh, remember that we stand as the people of Jesus, grateful for what he's done for us, and we pray that you'd help us to continue in our resolve, the resolve that you've put in our hearts, for us to be people who love you and serve you. And we pray that you'd help us to encourage each other to do that today, both in the courtyard as we talk to each other and in the in our fellowship with each other as part of your church here in Port Macquarie. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.